Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Professor William Bartram entitled Public Life and Festivals in 18th Century Venice. This is the fourth and final lecture delivered in conjunction with the Frankie Seminar, Art and Music in Venice, celebrating Venice's distinctive role in history as a center of artistic and musical culture. My talk today focuses very specifically on how artists pictorially celebrated urban festivals in 18th century Venice and what kinds of civic experiences these festivals offered locals and foreigners alike. But first, a disclaimer. I make no pretense, maybe this is good at five o'clock in the afternoon, that this talk offers intellectual nuts to crack. Uh, there are no theories to explore. Uh, there are issues to ponder. We're going to see instead how a thousand-year-old republic represented itself civically and artistically during its last century of life. The Venetian Republic, uh, its, its birth and death dates are usually given as 797 and 1797. 1797 is when Napoleon marches into the city and destroys the government. A general notion exists today among many educated people that 18th century Venice was a decadent place, corrupt and even wicked. Now, apart from the absurdity of people of one era calling others dissolute in another period, Venice's so-called depravity was really quite tame by today's standards, and of course, none of it was online. In addition, between 1700 and 1797, Venice witnessed the construction and decoration of over 24 entirely new churches. And the ratio of clergy to ordinary citizenry ranged from about one, one uh, priest, to 50 or 100 citizens, depending upon documents and the time in the century. So that it seems that piety was as popular as immorality. Nonetheless, dissolution and degeneracy attracted many foreigners. Of course, gambling and prostitution are as old as humankind itself. But much of Venetian self-indulgence, if we can call it that, was neither dissolute nor degenerate and was acted out on the public stage and in view of everyone and during the light of day. These public activities were regulated and legislated through state festivals. Many, many of these uh, festivals paradoxically observing the religious calendar of sacred feasts and saints' days. Others followed governmental and diplomatic occasions, and they gave Venice and its citizenry the chance to celebrate themselves, to celebrate their beliefs and their communal traditions as a society. So this afternoon, we're going to look at a series of festivities through works of art portrayed by 18th century view painters. You see one here. This is a painting by Canaletto. And we'll try to see these festivals through the prism of Venetian society. Not easily done, of course. 18th century Venice is a far cry from the city we know today, though the topography, the city, the streets, the buildings, the bridges are much the same. Life there, however, is not the same 
And the republic that was once independent for a thousand years now belongs, I think many of them feel this uh, now, alas and alack, they're part of Italy. Uh, in order to appreciate what we see in 18th century views, I think we have to try to remember how far most of us are, I think particularly in this country, from the choreography of civic pageantry, urban spectacle, even from sharing joy in our local streets. Uh, last year's Veterans Day parade in the little town in New Jersey where I live was very sad, not for the old soldiers riding by, but for the almost complete lack of tur town turnout. Without counting group occasions, very specific ethnic groups such as St. Patrick's Day or Columbus Day or other specific groups like Gay Pride, one of our rare collective celebrations is the president's inauguration every four years. And on the other side of the scale, we now have the annual commemoration of September 11th. But before looking at public parades and pageants, I thought we might first enjoy some depravity. First, gambling, which in Venice officially took place in a space that was called a ridotto, R-I-D-O-T-T-O. Uh, why don't I show you one right away? A ridotto. A ridotto comes from the word ricondurre. A ricondurre means to lead from. So if, you, if you're gambling and you lose money, the money is led away from you. Uh, they were not new in the 18th century, having originated in the 13th. During the Renaissance in the 15th and 16th centuries, there were palaces that were dedicated as ridotti, and they were mostly situated around Piazza San Marco. By the middle of the 17th century, there was an official governmental ridotto that legalized gambling, much as we have in certain states in the United States. And every table where the gambling took place had as its leader, the gamer, I don't know what you call them, was a patrician nobleman. The 18th century witnessed the resurgence of private ridotti, these numbers, I think, are amazing. There were 73 of them in 1755, and in 1765, there were 200 in one year from 73 to, to uh, 200. Many of them shifted weekly from house to house, like speakeasies, and you joined the Ridotto as a member and you paid dues. Uh, this is a, a scene of Ridotto by Francesco Guardi, uh, this is the hall of the Ridotto, but the gambling did not take place. The gambling took place in rooms uh, beyond these doors. There were 10 of these rooms. Uh, the public Ridotto, which took place, that is re this Ridotto, took place in a palace called the Palazzo Dandolo. Uh, this is the Palazzo Dandolo today, which is a, a major hotel on the Grand Canal. You see here is the piazza. Here is where it is right over here. Uh, it boasted a major restoration in 1768. This is what it looked like. Only three years after the famous Stamp Act of the British Parliament that led to our revolution. The Venetian government closed this ridotto in 1774, so it had very few years of life. And here you see it in a view by a, uh, a view painter called Gabriel Bella, who's not a great painter, 
but who is very informative, and we're going to see lots of his views. Um, notice the cafe on the far left over here, and this is the same room today on the upper uh, part. It's been restored. You can go into the Hotel Monaco and just go into this reception room and enjoy this famous gambling room, but no gambling today. Uh, here are two smaller paintings by Pietro Longhi of the Ridotto, but now we're in these little rooms. Uh, you can see the bankers at the um, gaming tables, one here and one here. Uh, these were the patricians. Many players wore cloaks called baute, B-A-U-T-E. They covered the shoulders and neck. They had three-cornered hats or tricorn hats. And many of them wore what are called these white masks that were called a larva, L-A-R-V-A. Uh, in the painting on the right, you see women wearing uh, full black masks. This black mask was called a moretta, M-O-R-E-T-T-A, which means a little black thing. Now, this little black thing, it was kind of remarkable, because in order to keep it on your face, and they were worn by the women, you had to clench a button in the back between your teeth. That, in other words, it wasn't tied on with strings, but there was a button on the back, and you grasped it, and you held on to it. Now, you might say, well, they couldn't talk. Well, that was the whole idea. They couldn't talk, but oh, could they behave flirtatiously. Now, of course, the importance of the masks is that they, or one of the important aspects of the masks, is that they completely leveled society. You didn't know whom you were speaking to, particularly if the person wore a cloak. Now, obviously, there are different kinds of clothing, and you can tell, for instance, in the painting on the right, that this woman belongs to one class of society, they to another. Uh, everybody during a uh, mask-wearing time, which was carnival, we'll talk about that, addressed everybody else as buongiorno, signora maschera. Buongiorno, good day. Signora means signora. It's Venetian for signora. And means missus. And the reason it was always referred to as feminine is because the word maschera is a feminine noun. Uh, so everybody, male or female, was greeted with buongiorno, signora maschera. Now, from gambling, uh, perhaps we can move to more degeneracy and move to prostitution. This was another uh, economic activity regulated by the state, at least as to where the women could ply their trade. Much of it took place again around Piazza San Marco or around the Rialto, which was the business center of the city, uh, therefore the logical site of prostitution. Prostitutes, however, were forbidden to take, play, to take part in most ceremonies and pageants, but they were permitted to ride openly in gondola in one of the longest waterways in the city, which is the Rio de la Senza. And here you see a modern photograph of this canal, and you see the double-headed arrow uh, showing where that Rio is at the far reaches of the city. Now here's a painting by uh, Bella, showing the same view, and this is just one of the many uh, view uh, paintings in uh, this afternoon in the lecture that you will see where view painters really don't paint the truth at all, uh, because obviously this view, this view of the canal looks very different from the one on the bottom. It's the same uh, place. Uh, you can see Venetians watching the prostitutes uh, from bridges and from the embankment. Um, and the uh, prostitutes are sitting singly or doubly uh, in the gondola. 
But because my talk focuses on public life in Venice, we're going to leave these women in their boats and wherever they might go afterwards. Uh, public festivities in Venice, as I said at the beginning, were organized around two kinds of celebrations, religious and governmental. And sometimes these two categories intersected one another. For instance, on the feast day of San Rocco, or St. Rock, August 18th, um, August 16th, sorry, we have um, governmental and religious overlapping. Following legend, Rock was a 14th century Frenchman who gave away his possessions much like St. Francis. He made a pilgrimage to Rome and affected, eventually, supposedly, many miraculous cures. Uh, his Venetian cult was particularly strong because of the relevance of his healing powers to a city that was historically hit by the plague. His body was brought to Venice in the 15th century. A church was dedicated to him, which you see on the right, uh, and then a lay confraternity, or what no is known in Venetian as a scuola, that is a school, but it was not a school in our sense, was uh, created adjacent to the church. Uh, many of you will know the scuola. Uh, here it is because it contains a great cycle of paintings by Jacopo Tintoretto. You see the upper hall here on the bottom right. The scuola of San Rocco is today the oldest functioning lay confraternity in Venice. That is, it still functions. Its, uh, uh, its mission is still charity. Some of you, uh, okay, let me just go on. Um, because of Roch's, uh, San Rocco's fame as a miraculous healer of diseases, the elected head of state, the Doge, uh, began officially visiting the church uh, after the uh, city was struck by the plague in 1576. So the feast of San Rocco on August 16th recalled the cessation of that plague, just as another feast does too, which I won't talk about. Um, and on that day, August 16th, an outdoor art festival was held every year, and I'll show you some view of that, views of that. Now, the doge visited the church in a regatta. Here is obviously a modern facsimile of that. He uh, got off near the church, and he was welcomed by the clergy and the officials of the church and the scuola. First, he went into church, and here is a view of that um, in a painting by Bella, and perhaps you can see um, are these blurred? I'm sorry, I think they may be. Um, here, the procession is coming out of the church and going into the scuola. Uh, now I'll show you another painting of the same feast uh, and of a later moment in the festivities. This is a great painting uh, by uh, Canaletto that's in the National Gallery uh, in London where the activities have ended. Um, not only has the uh, doge left the church, he's also left the Scuola. This is a painting of the 1730s. Um, here is a detail of the doge in yellow with members of his retinue. But what is interesting to see, if I show you details of the painting by Bella and details of this painting plus details of a print, um, in terms of the art uh, exhibition, here are people standing around uh, looking at paintings that were hung up for the day. Famous artists, young artists, everybody put things up, landscapes, religious paintings, all kinds of paintings were hung, and so Venetians could know what's going on in the art world of that time. But the greatest Venetian festivities didn't take place in the smaller uh, campi, the smaller little piazza, piazze, but the campi, but in the biggest spaces. 
in Piazza San Marco, where the red arrow is, in the adjacent piazzetta, that is the small piazza, and in the basin of St. Mark's or the Bacino before it. All three are, in effect, really grand performance stages. The most famous of these processions is, of course, um, uh, pictured in a 15th century painting, 1496, by Gentili Bellini, which shows a, a procession uh, coming out of the Ducal Palace and commemorating a relic of the true cross. Obviously, with the church dominating the piazza, it's not surprising that most of the festivities were religious. But by the 18th century, all kinds of other events took place in the piazza as well. Among them, a great market that was called the Fiera della Senza. Fiera means uh, the fair. Senza is the Venetian word for the ascension, the ascension of Christ. And that took place in June when the ascension of Christ is celebrated. The Fiera pr protracted uh, pre-Lenten carnival into June, so I mean, We'll come back to this, but Carnival started in the fall, it stopped for Christmas, it picked up again, it then stopped for Lent, and then it picked up again. Um, so during the Fiera, uh, uh, these makeshift stalls were set up, uh, and there were objects uh, for sale. Uh, this is a view of the old Fiera until 1777, uh, taken or painted with our back to the church, to uh, San Marco, and looking instead at what is today called the Napoleonic Wing. But the Napoleonic Wing as it looked before Napoleon. So this part of the Napoleonic Wing is this. This church was destroyed by Napoleon, uh, and this part of the uh, uh, piazza was destroyed too, and then this whole wing uh, was rebuilt following the module that you have on the left. In 1777, this entire makeshift series of stalls was rebuilt, recreated, uh, by the same architect who designed the uh, front of San Rocco and the gambling house at the Palazzo Dandolo, that is Bernardino Macaruzzi. And this is what the new one looked like. Um, it uh, is an elliptical construction. Uh, was made of wood, painted to look like marble, uh, obviously meant to coordinate with the buildings on, um, uh, particularly on left and right here. We're looking now towards San Marco, but of course, in, com in contrast to the buildings on left and right, it is a curvilinear structure rather than rectangular as we know in the piazza. There were 52 shops within the ellipse, and these shops within the ellipse sold works of worth, objects of worth. Then there was the trash, the baubles, and they were sold on the outside. And you can see what I assume may be secondhand clothing, we don't know, over uh, here. Um, 200 oil lamps lit the ensemble at night, and the entrances into the ellipse were punctuated by statues and by vases. All of this is in wood, none of it was in um, marble or stone. Now I'm going to show you a very different interpretation of it, uh, but you can recognize the same place. This is by Francesco Guardi, uh, painted in the 1780s of the same place, again looking towards the church of San uh, Gemignano. Sadly, this entire construction 
uh, which was only built in 1777, was burned by Napoleon in 1797. Uh, and this and other things that Napoleon did was, uh, was done in order to humiliate uh, the state. Now, the most important event of Ascension Day was the ducal uh, outing on the great barge that Professor Nelson talked to uh, for the symbolic but deeply meaningful marriage of Venice with the Adriatic Sea. As Venice controlled the Adriatic, it wedded the Adriatic. And this took place during Ascension Day activities when the Doge and his retinue uh, rode out towards the Adriatic and the Doge threw a ring into the water and officially married the sea. The boat was called the Bucintoro. Here it is in a painting by another view painting, Luca, painter Luca Carlovaris. Nobody knows exactly what the name means, although obviously we have the word toro, a bull there, but as far as I know, etymologists don't know what the word means. There were four such boats built across the century, one in the 14th, one in the 16th, one in the 17th, each time one deteriorated or was torn apart. And the one we see here was built in 1727. Here is a detail of it. Uh, this boat, too, was destroyed by Napoleon in 1797 uh, in order to humiliate the Venetian state. A model, however, has been built to scale, and we know that the ship was 110 feet long, 26 feet high. It took four, uh, no, sorry, 200 oarsmen to move the boat, four men to an oar, and there were 100 passengers up on the deck. Now, the Buccintoro and his passengers left the Ducal Palace here. It then moved across the Bacino here, and it stopped here, uh, close to, but not adjacent to, the Church of San Pietro. San Pietro was where the Bishop of Venice then had his uh, bishopric seat, where you see the red O, and it stopped to allow him to come aboard. We can see this in a wonderful drawing by Canaletto, okay, uh, and then in a painting by Guardi uh, over here, although sometimes I have to say that I don't really know if the Buccintoro was going out or coming in. They then set, for, set uh, sail for the Adriatic, and here are two views of where this would take place. So you see here on the left, Venice in its lagoon, and this is the opening to the Adriatic, uh, this channel right here. So this is the Venetian lagoon, this is the Adriatic, and they set sail for this, where the doge would drop the ring in. Um, a lot of the ceremony took place um, in front of a church called San Nicolo on the Lido. Here is uh, Bella's painting, and there is the church itself. What I find very amusing about this, of course, the church itself is a very humble affair, and if you look at the uh, church in the painting, it looks almost as big as St. Peter's in Rome. In fact, in every view of the, uh, of the ceremony, each painter paints it as an enormous uh, church. So this is by Bella, this is by Guardi over here, the same view. And I just wanted to point out to you, one of the things we can enjoy in these paintings, but particularly in Guardi's painting, uh, are, the, are the different kinds of boats that Venice used. Uh, there is, of course, the Bucintoro over here. Uh, there is, of course, what we all know, the gondola, although these gondolas have these cabins for privacy, which today we don't have. Another boat, a festival kind of boat called the Bisona, and then another smaller, more simple boat called the Peyota over here. And finally, we have 
Canaletto's uh, interpretation, which uh, you saw as my title page. Yeah, you, you'll notice that people are wearing masks, which they were allowed to do, as I mentioned to you before, during the Feast of the Sensa. Uh, the Power this is a fabulous painting. Uh, there are two versions of it, one in the Queen's collection uh, at Windsor and one in a private collection in Milan. Um, the painting is marvelous because of the sheer pageantry, the sense that this is just a wonderful day uh, in Venice when everybody's happy. But the painting also conveys something of how Venetians thought of themselves and how Canaletto interpreted that pictorially in the painting. So if we read the painting, and indeed Venice from left to right, uh, as many of you will know, we have first the mint, that is the power of any state to create its own currency. Then the library, where of course the emphasis on learning. Uh, the piazzetta and the Church of San Marco in the distance. The seat of government, the ducal palace. And then of course, somewhat hidden by the Bucintoro, the state prisons, uh, the right of any state to punish transgressor, the transgressors. Uh, the, the sweep and the depth of Venice are simply majestically conveyed by uh, Canaletto, as well the vertical thrust of the bell tower, which you can, giving this, this sense of real uh, power. And of course, on the far right of the painting, the flag of state. Now, the longest uh, feast of the Venetian calendar, connected at the end with the feast of the Sensa, was Carnival. And carnival uh, was not a religious, uh, but it seemed to embrace everything. Um, the ascension, of course, celebrated Christ's ascent into heaven. But carnival was instituted to mark the period before Lent, that is, uh, the period before the Passion of Christ. Uh, by the 18th century, a carnival began, as I noted before, in order. I mean, they couldn't get enough of it. It then was suspended for Christmas, it started again after uh, January 6th, uh, Epiphany, the Adoration of the Kings, uh, and then it went on until it went on forever. Now, the Venetian Carnival was the most famous in Europe during the 18th century. Everybody tried to go there at the time. By the end of the 18th century, it could be dangerous. People were carrying weapons. There were also many public balls. As I said, masks were uh, allowed. Gaming took place. Um, and the most fabulous of the festivities of the Sensa was, uh, took place in the Piazzetta, the small Piazzetta adjacent to the Piazza. Uh, this took place on Giovedì Grasso, or Fat Thursday. Now, I've had some trouble in making clear to myself, and maybe any, somebody here knows, I do not think Fat Thursday is Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday, as I understand it, is right before the crucifixion, and it celebrates or commemorates the day of the Last Supper. Fat Thursday is the Thursday before Mardi Gras, which is the end of Lent, right? Good, I'm glad, because I read something where it said they were the same, and they're not the same. Um, so on uh, di Grasso, a Fat Thursday, uh, acrobats flew down from the bell tower. Now, this is a view by Guardi. You may notice here, and I'll show you several more, wires that come down. Now, these wires connecting the top of the bell tower with the piazza, or the piazzetta, um, uh, allowed the acrobats to do a feat called the volo dell'angelo, that is the flight of the angel. 
and the flight of the angel was this angel, the angel on top of the bell tower. And this is an 18th century drawing from 1730 actually showing how these acrobats were attached to contraptions which were on the wires. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, because the Volo dell'Angelo was a state festival, the Venetian archives have records of every acrobat who flew down the wires during the 18th century. Um, there were fireworks in the Piazzetta on Giove di Grasso. Uh, fires were started, accidents were caused, the most famous of which was in 1759, uh, after which the government issued regulations to try to control these fireworks. A contemporary structure was built on Giove di Grasso. Uh, and here in this view, you can actually see one of these acrobats coming down, right? Right here. And here is the contemporary structure. There were acrobats here as well. And in the same painting, uh, one could make out the doge who was watching everything uh, from the balcony of the Ducal Palace. Here is a drawing by Canaletto of the same event, although unfortunately no acrobats. And here is one by Guardi uh, of the same event too. Now you'll notice one of the interesting things about these uh, different views is that the viewpoint is always the same. Just as every year the festivities were the same, every view painter seems to have repeated the same view. And so I show you these three paintings, uh, two paintings and a drawing all together, and while the paintings are radically different in style, uh, they're not very different in the way the festival is shown. Now, turning from religious uh, holidays, let's look at a few diplomatic events, which were sometimes led by heads of state, but sometimes by diplomats, ambassadors, who were presenting their credentials to the Venetian government. I'm going to show you one of each, a head of state and a diplomat, or vice versa, first a, a diplomat and then a king. Um, the first one was an ambassador. This was Charles Montague, uh, from the court of St. James's, uh, the fourth Earl of Manchester. He came to the Ducal Palace in September 1707. And here is Karl of Ars's painting of the event. As I said, some of the formatting is unfortunate, uh, just the way it all, I don't know, has to do with configuration, I'm told. Um, Karl of Ars's view is quite spectacular here too, very broad, very deep. Crowds of people uh, attend the event, and on the far left, you will notice, Calavaris emphasizes the shipping that, of course, made Venice great. Now, of course, you might say, well, where is the ambassador? Because these ambassadorial paintings were painted for the ambassador. He would commission them and then uh, often take them home. So here is uh, the ambassador. Uh, hard to pick out, but sort of like looking for Waldo. Uh, there he is and we can recognize him from his own portrait on the upper left. The visit of the fourth Earl of Montague is very important, not only for contemporary political reasons, but because when he returned to London, he brought several Venetian painters with him and in effect changed the history of English painting in the 18th century because of the three Venetian painters who followed him home to London. The second visit I'm going to refer to is by the Danish king, Frederick IV of Denmark, who came during 1708-1709, the winter. Um, 
turning back to the snowfall of Saturday, which luckily was um, uh, followed by not cold weather. Um, the, his visit was uh, memorable because it coincided with one of the coldest winters that ever took place in Venice. And here is a view of, uh, by an anonymous artist showing that the lagoon completely froze over and people could walk between Venice and the mainland. According to things that were said at the time, uh, sort of contemporary jokes and, and uh, whatever, uh, it seems that Venetians blamed the king for bringing the cold weather from Denmark. Now, if the um, uh, English ambassadorial view shows the city at work, uh, Calavaris's view of the king's visit shows it at play. It shows a regatta, which took place in front of the Palazzo Balbi, and you can see where that is in the slide on the right, which is not too far from the Rialto Bridge. Uh, the Palazzo Balbi, where the Palazzo Balbi is at the twist of the Grand Canal, is at one of the widest parts of the Grand Canal, but nowhere is wide, as Carlovaris paints it. Uh, perhaps you can make out the Rial uh, Rialto Bridge all the way down uh, there. Um, this took place on March 4th, 1709. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it by looking at the painting, but supposedly it was another cold day uh, today uh, as well. Uh, now, perhaps one of the most magnificent uh, of visits to Venice, uh, this is the, the last one I'll show you, uh, was that of the Russian Tsarevich, uh, Paul, and his wife, Maria Feodorovna, in 1782, the Grand Duke and Duchess of Russia. Uh, Paul was the son of Catherine I, whom we know, no, Catherine II, whom we know as Catherine the Great, and after his mother's death, he became um, Tsar in 1796. Uh, one of the advantages of following the Russian visit, there are two advantages, or two ways that make it easy. One, that a contemporary Venetian patrician, a woman uh, uh, who was involved in the proceedings, kept a diary of it. And she wrote letters to her brother in London. And this diary actually can be found online. I mean, it's in Italian, of course, but you can read it day by day as she describes what took place in Venice. And the other reason why you can follow this visit easily is there are lots of paintings and prints that record the visit of Paul and Marie. Now, they came to the city incognito, unidentified. Nobody supposedly knew who they were. Of course, everybody knew who they were. So you might say, well, why did they visit incognito? Well, the reason for that was there was a tradition to that. If they came incognito, the city didn't have to pay for the festivities. And the city could ask wealthy private aristocrats to come forth and contribute. Uh, it meant that the state didn't have to carry the burden of taxing people, and it meant that everybody could have fun, and the taxes didn't have to go up. So they came, not as the Grand Duke and Duchess of Russia, but as what was known as the Conti del Nord, the counts, uh, Count and Countess from the North, the Northern Count and Countess. Uh, even today, you might know, uh, uh, Ellen will know this, that whenever there is a cold wind hitting Venice, uh, the Venetians say it's coming from Russia. Okay. And it probably is. Uh, um, now, the Conte del Nord entered the city in February 1782, precisely on February 18th, uh, very cold, 
Uh, and they went to a hotel that has been recently restored today, although I don't know it, called the Albergo Leon Bianco. Here it is in uh, deep red uh, on the slide, uh, and here is a view of where it is on the Grand Canal. Uh, they were overwhelmed by the city, as of course most of us are the first time and even the millionth time that we go to Venice. They went to a concert in a hall in Piazza San Marco. Everybody was masked, February, they were all masked. Uh, the, they went to the concert, the music lasted for two hours, uh, and exactly because they were incognito, uh, the patrician writer writes that the decorations for the hall were played down. They weren't ostentatious at all, just to make sure that everybody knew that these people were not important. Uh, they then went to a theater, a newly built theater, um, the Teatro San Benedetto, not so much for a concert. Now, there are musicians playing here. The musicians are playing here and here. Prices were exorbitant but they weren't exorbitant for the concert. They were exorbitant because the Conti del Nord were eating and everybody wanted to watch them eat. And so the patricians paid extraordinary um, uh, tickets so they could sit up in the boxes and watch them eat. And I want to point out to you again, although this is the exactly the same event, one is a print, one is a painting, uh, notice uh, that everything's very different. Look where the musicians are here. And if we go back, um, it's, it's all different. So I think one of the things that one always has to keep in mind is that view paintings are never truthful, or rarely truthful, or they tell partial truth. Um, the next morning, Paul and Marie uh, visited the city. Uh, they went to the Ducal Palace to visit the government. And that night, on February 20th, 1782, they went to a concert. This those of you who were in the seminar a while ago, was the most singular event that Venice could offer. They went to a concert of women musicians. Uh, the concert was played by 80 women musicians, orphans who were raised and trained in state conservatories, one of which was, of course, the church where Antonio Vivaldi had been the uh, Kapellmeister, as it were, uh, but he was long dead in 1782, and you can see the Duke and Duchess picked out on the far right. All of the musicians were dressed in black in this sort of choir stall uh, on your left, and you may be able to pick out that this row of musicians is playing, are playing, they are playing both, they are playing violins or, or stringed instruments whereas these two rows, if I'm not mistaken, are singers. Now I'm going to show you the same event portrayed by Francesco Guardi. It doesn't look the same, does it? Uh, we know it's the same because we know of the event, and we also know that, as you can see, there are three windows and a mirror. There, and then there is a mirror over here, and if we go back, you can see that over here. But note that the chandeliers are different, the uh, formation of where the singers and, and the musicians are is totally different. Um, it's a different uh, painting. By the way, the two painters were painting in exactly the same year, 1781, 1782. Well, of course, 1782, because that's when the event uh, took place. Um, and not only does Guardi change the architecture, but he reverses the musicians. 
because as far as I can pick out, we have singers below and uh, instrumentalists above. But I haven't seen the painting for several years. It's in Munich, uh, so I wouldn't swear to that, but I think that's the case. Uh, on February 21st, 1782, Paul and his wife visited the arsenal uh, where Venice built its ships, the key to its great uh, um, power and wealth over the centuries. Uh, the 22nd and 23rd, there were more visits and regattas and races and entertainments. And on Thursday, February 24, 1782, the Russians spent their last day in the city, and a great uh, pageant was staged for them in Piazza San Marco. Now, the pageant that was strayed, stayed, uh, staged for them, and this is, of course, a painting by another artist whom I haven't shown you before, Giambattista Cimaroli. Uh, this was a similar event staged in 1740 for the visit of the uh, King of Poland. This was a bull-baiting event. Now, bull-baiting was not what takes place in Spain. It was not, well, it was altogether different. First of all, there were 70 bulls. Second of all, what took place is that boys and dogs baited the bulls, and they sort of exhausted them. Now, crew, these bulls that were baited were destined for the slaughterhouse later in the day. So this, this is a painting by Bella. You can see the temporary uh, structure, the amphitheater that was built okay, within the piazza. Here, we don't have a painting showing the event of 1782, but we do have a wonderful print. And this print shows post-bull baiting, and it shows a kind of cortege or procession that took place in the piazza. Uh, piazza San Ma uh, the Church of San Marco would be to the right, and uh, I pointed out where the Church of San Gimignano, now destroyed, is, and in front of it, there was a temporary structure which held the uh, Duke and Duchess, and their guests. At the end of the day, the Duke supposedly uh, the, uh, pulled out a number, we've all seen these, of diamond-studded snuff boxes and handed, out, handed them out, sort of like, I don't know what, uh, to all of his hosts who had paid for his Venetian stay. Um, Fifteen years later, on May 12, 1797, the last doge abdicated and gave his ducal crown up as Napoleon threatened either that the government, uh, uh, what do we say, uh, the government either yield or he would invade the city. Uh, so this is a, a, a 19th century painting showing the last doge abdicating. Piazza San Marco, which had witnessed so many festivities, on December 13th, that is seven months later in 1797, witnessed one of the humiliations Napoleon forced upon it. The great bronze horses atop the basilica were lowered. Those horses, which had been stolen from Constantinople as war booty in 1204, were now taken by the French as war booty to Paris, where they were kept until 1815. In 1815, these great horses were brought back, and they were put back atop the basilica. Although the horses were back, of course, the pageantry had ended. Venice by now was no longer, of course, independent. 
but had become a vassal entity of the Austrian Empire. And Venice, through the 19th century, had no more reason to celebrate its historic traditions as a society. Thank you. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. The preceding lecture by William Bartram was the fourth and final lecture delivered in the fall of 2011 in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, Art and Music in Venice, taught by art history professor Robert Nelson, Robert Lehman Professor of History of Art, and Ellen Roseanne, George A. Saden Professor of Music. The lecture took place at the Whitney Humanities Center on November 3, 2011.